You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research arm of Bloomberg LP. In this podcast series, we talk about the intersection of business, policy, and law. My name is Holly Frome. I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering consumer and industrial litigation. Today's podcast will focus on regulatory and other issues related to PFAS chemicals, or what are also called forever chemicals. I'm delighted to be joined today by Scott Wilson, President and CEO of Regenesis, a global leader in environmental technology. Scott has devoted a significant amount of time to PFAS remediation. So Scott, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what Regenesis does? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Holly. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, uh, just by way of background, uh, I've been in the environmental remediation industry since really the birth of the of the industry itself back in the 80s. I have an undergraduate degree in biology and a master's degree in applied microbiology as it relates to chemical, uh, as it relates to petroleum engineering and geochemistry type, type things. We were uh, injecting bacteria into oil reservoirs and trying to clean up certain fractions of oil with bacteria back in the day. And I uh, then moved into the environmental industry and uh, was with one of the first groundwater treatment firms, in fact, the first uh, public company treating groundwater. That was groundwater technology back in the day. And then I, then I went back to school and uh, got a got an MBA from Kellogg and then uh, have been with uh, Regenesis for now 25 years or so. So that's, that's a bit of my background. And what does Regenesis do? Yeah, so... So we are a company that's dedicated to developing sort of the leading edge environmental technologies to restore groundwater and soil that's been contaminated. Uh, And so what we do is we develop chemical and and, and biological type technologies that are used by engineering firms all around the world uh, to restore polluted land and, and contaminated land. So we have uh, we have a pretty broad 
understanding of the global uh, problems that are that are confronting us with the use of different chemicals in our everyday lives that get into the media that we breathe and that we that we uh, you know eat and drink and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, so that's what we do. Got it. And I understand that a significant amount of your attention has been devoted to PFAS. For those who don't know, can you explain what PFAS are and why they are a contaminant of concern? Yeah. So PFAS stands for poly or perfluorinated alkyl substances. And really what that means is that it, it, it's a nomenclature for a broad range of chemicals that are all related uh, and, and they're chains of carbon atoms. Uh, ranging from a, a couple carbons long to eight or nine carbons long. And these these molecules have one, if you consider a chain of carbon, on one end, there's a what's known as a water-loving group or a hydrophilic group that, that tends to, to pull the molecule into water. The other end, I should say that the rest of the chain has fluorine atoms all over it. And, and that, 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 end of the molecule really doesn't like water at all so it tends to stay more on the surface of 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 materials and or into into uh, oil or, or fats so so what you have is the, the, these molecules there's probably like 5000 different variations of these uh, but but they have really unique characteristics much like soaps if you want to look at it that way they will tend to move in water somewhat depending on the length of the molecule the more the more long the longer the chain of carbons the more it it, it does not want to be in the water um, but but what happens is that is that these molecules will tend to aggregate at the surface of water and air and they make bubbles uh, and and as, as a result they've been used in products such as aqueous Film forming foams, which are firefighting foams. So you see, uh, you know, on on airports and so forth, you see these foam that they spray down on the on the runway. That's often what's known as a triple F or firefighting foam that's made with PFAS molecules. And and um, it turns out that 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 the way the way this whole thing started was when when these were invented, they realized that it changed the surface. Of, of materials that were sprayed with these compounds. For instance, you could you could spray, a, you know, put it on a frying pan and it would make it nonstick. You could put it into clothes and, and, and water wouldn't penetrate it, but, but air could breathe through it. So we, these molecules have found their, their, their way into all sorts of products in our daily lives. The nonstick little cupcake holders often had PFAS in them, the little, the little paper, paper doily things that you they put around cupcakes, for instance. So, I mean, there is in all sorts of materials, but probably the most insidious area that we see it is is in the firefighting foams. And the reason for that is the firefighting foams were formulated with the longer chain PFAS, uh, the eight or eight, the eight carbon long type molecules, and those tend to not want to. Uh, be in well, they tend to want to accumulate in oil and in in fat molecules. So, if you drink those, like let's say that some of that firefighting foam gets into groundwater and then it gets into a well, and you recover that for drinking, even a very small amount of that 
going into your body over time will be detrimental simply because it's building up in your body. It's what's known as bioaccumulation. The long chain, the long carbon chain surrounded with fluorine tends to accumulate in the fat cells, uh, the fat in the cells in your body, and it doesn't go out with your urine. So your body accumulates it over time. And when we get larger, when we get these uh, higher concentrations, as it builds up, it starts to have toxic and carcinogenic effects. So that's sort of a little bit of background on the types of molecules, where they're used, and the impact uh, to human health and the environment. What, what happens to the humans also happens to uh, all sorts of, of uh, life uh, in streams and surface water bodies, etc. Got it. And so what types of PFAS impacted sites exist out there? Good question. So let's if you if you look at at, at pro, uh, sites that are impacted with PFAS, um, the, probably the, the most clear and present danger is is the drinking water sites, right? So they they that's on one end of the problem. That's where it's being recovered and 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 we're you know we're put, potentially drinking it. So there's water drinking water sites, but. If you look at if you look at where that PFAS came from, it's impacting that drinking water site. It came from up gradient someplace, and that would be, let's say, a, an airport or a military base, an industrial facility, maybe a landfill. And what happens is, let, let's let's for an example, let's look at um, uh, an airport, the fire training area where they were spraying these foams regularly to train. That's filled with some PFAS in the soil there. Well, then rain comes and drives it down into the subsurface soil, down to a point where it impacts the groundwater table, which is a point in the subsurface where the, the soil is filled with water. It's saturated. Once it's down there, then it tends to move off-site and, and down, down gradient, if you want to look at it that way. So those are what I call the source sites. Those source sites are the sites that need remediation. Certainly on the, on the very down gradient where we're recovering it for drinking water, we'll have to treat that for drinking. But also the sites that are causing the problem are the source sites. And to answer your question, Holly, those, those include uh, airports, military bases, and industrial facilities. Uh, and those industrial facilities could range from manufacturing facilities for textiles that were coating with PFAS, to uh, making uh, dishware that was coated with Teflon type substances, uh, to landfills, uh, to a whole range of, of different industries that have used this material in the past. Does that answer the question? Got it, yep. And then with respect to those, those types of sites, wh which ones have you remediated? What types of sites have you remediated? Yeah, well, so, to be honest with you, there isn't a whole lot of, of, of remediation going on yet. Most most of all the sites out there have just been in a study mode where they're trying to figure out what the, the extent of contamination is and where the, the where the groundwater beneath the site and moving off the site is actually impacted with PFAS. So that's what most of the work that's been done so far. However, there are some sites that have been remediated. Uh, we have, clean, we have uh, actually treated about 40 project sites or between 40 and 50 project sites to date. And they've included everything from a small uh, furniture manufacturing facility that was using PFAS 
to uh, a major refinery that was uh, having PFAS uh, leave it leave its facility into a river uh, to a Superfund sites, which was an old landfill that that uh, was trying to go through a hazardous waste closure action, and they realized PFAS was on the site, and and so that US EPA has utilized. Uh, uh, our technology to restore that site as well. So a broad range of facilities. So when you say Superfund site, can you explain what that is? Ah, yeah. So um, Superfund means uh, that it's, it was uh, a Superfund is a is a nickname, an acronym for for the CERCLA, uh, CERCLA law, uh, and and. Uh, what, what that does is, is basically the US EPA has money available if a site is uh, abandoned and, and there's no responsible party stepping forward, they will actually utilize that money uh, to, to implement a remediation and clean up themselves. There's also uh, sites that are named as a Superfund project site by the US EPA, whereby uh, responsible parties will get together and they'll do the cleanup themselves under the auspice or under the direction of the U.S. EPA, and they they can be named as a Superfund site as well. Got it. But PFAS hasn't been designated hazardous. I understand. So if if um if a substance is designated hazardous, <clears throat> then under CERCLA, EPA can come in and try to enforce uh, try try to you know um, force responsible parties to clean it up. Um, but but these substances have not yet been designated hazardous. Um, so why would they? Um, be remediating those, or why would they even? How would they even know that they they need to be remediated? At super, currently existing Superfund sites. Yeah, well, uh, so just just to be clear here, when we say CERCLA, we mean the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. It was yep, thank that you. Was, yeah, that was put in and that was enacted in 1980, um, and 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 so. Under that, under that act, uh, there, under that act, the EPA has the right to designate certain compounds as hazardous substances. And when a substance is named as a hazardous substance under CERCLA, it means that that there has to that, that anyone having sp spilled that material has to, under the National Contingency Plan, has to alert the US EPA. And then has to to implement a cleanup, so that's that's really what that means. At, at at this point in time, the U.S. EPA has come forward and said, "Hey, um, we we put forward a roadmap on PFAS." Uh, Administrator Regan put, put together a a a, uh, a roadmap that 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 says that we will in fact designate this as a uh, a, a hazardous substance under CERCLA, but it has not yet been done that has not been uh that has not happened and and the thought is it'll happen early next year however states themselves have taken this uh, have taken the action to to implement uh regulations and put in cleanup levels for 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 pfas particularly pfos and pfoa which are two specific uh molecules within the pfas family so states have implemented cleanup levels. However, federal facilities like military bases, FAA controlled airports and so forth are not obligated to clean up to those state levels 
uh, and they're waiting for federal guidance. So once the federal government, that is the EPA, implements this rulemaking and says, hey, we're going to make uh, PFAS a hazardous substance, uh, these military bases in the FAA will have to comply. Got it. So it sounds like some are starting to already. Yes, I think so. There are people that are starting to get ahead of it. Um, you know, most of the work that we have done, the forty sites we've cleaned up, there have been a couple that are that, that are federal. Uh, however, mostly at state level, the federal is still waiting for for the uh, the other shoe to drop on the on the uh, substance designation as a hazardous substance. Yeah, got it. We've talked about. Um, you know, other sites besides water authorities that um, may require remediation. 3M, one of the, one of the manufacturers of PFAS, reported a tentative deal. Well, um, they they just um, submitted a proposal um, to resolve through a class action um, water authority cases for lawsuits for remediation, reportedly for, for ten to twelve point five billion dollars. Um, and that would resolve PFAS claims related to cost to drink drinking water to treat drinking water. Do you have any idea of how many of the other sites, the non-water authority sites you described, exist? Yes. Um, so uh, again, other than the the, the 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 drinking water sites that are impacted, uh, a, a good a really good uh, basis for this was a paper that was published uh, by Derek Salvatore and a group at Northeastern uh, University, and a few others were involved too. There was something like 10 authors on this paper. So it's pretty comprehensive. It was published in the American Chemical Society Journal, uh, Environmental Science and Technology Letters. Uh, and uh, it was published last year, late last year. And they, uh, what they did is they put together a probabilistic model and, 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 and tried to, to statistically uh, estimate how many project sites or how many sites out there in the U.S. are impacted by PFAS or contaminated by PFAS. And they came up with uh, about 519 airports, uh, 3,500 military bases, and some 49,000 industrial facilities. And those industrial facilities would include landfills, refineries, you know, manufacturing, et cetera. So it's a huge number. And in terms of liability, I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, uh, a remediation, uh, a remediation of a, the refinery site that I mentioned that we had completed, um, a large engineering firm, uh, multinational engineering firm undertook that cleanup. And they compared our technology to, to the typical technology of pumping the water from the ground and treating it. And uh, they said just, you know, just the installation alone uh, would have been 20 some million dollars just for the installation of the, of the, the pumping system. Uh, implementing our technology, they were able to do that for about 3.5 million. So this, the, there's a huge looming latent liability out there to clean these sites up. Uh, and and the typical way to do that is to try to recover the water from the subsurface and put it through different techniques to concentrate it, whether you're bubbling it and skimming off the bubbles or whether you're putting it on activated carbon. Those pumping systems are trying to flush the PFAS out of the subsurface. And, and flushing it out of the subsurface 
is what's been coined by by a, a leading researcher remediation of perpetuity trying to wash PFAS out of the subsurface aquifer by pumping the water out will take more than my lifetime your lifetime your 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 children's lifetime it's going to take 100 plus years of pumping so it's at a huge cost on an annual basis so it's really a, a looming huge liability so there's pumping and treating and then what you do which i'll ask you to explain in a minute and then with respect to like water authorities um what are the methods they are using to um address pfas in the drinking water okay so uh, again looking at the sites now we're down gradient we're down where the drinking water is being impacted right and where drinking water is being impacted what they, they will most likely do is is the water that they pulled out of the ground they have to treat that to some extent anyway so it's already in a pipe uh so what they'll what they'll do is they will put that through probably what's known as ion exchange resins much like a water softener takes mm -hmm. uh takes takes minerals out there are certain ion exchange resins that that will pull pfas out and then they can regenerate those or dispose of them or they'll put it through activated carbon which is like charcoal huge charcoal filters that they'll put the water through and it'll strip the PFAS out onto the carbon. So that's the types of technologies that they will implement at the mm -hmm. water at the water authorities. Yes. Yeah. And so with respect to um, the other sites that we talked about and the technology that you've implemented that you'll explain in a minute, um, why would those other sites have to be remediated if they're already treating the water, if, if they intend to treat the water at the, at the water authority anyway? Right. Um, well, you, you have to you have to remember that the PFAS moving in the subsurface in, in groundwater, um, as it spreads, you're impacting a wider and wider and wider amount of the water resource we have. Not all of groundwater is impacted. In fact, very small amounts impacted at this point. And so the intent is to uh, I, the intent of, of designating this as a hazardous substance is to make make it so that people have to clean it up. Um, what last thing we want is, is is the water resources, the groundwater, to be impacted throughout the U.S. so that it always has to be treated with these expensive methodologies. The other thing you have to remember is that groundwater uh, impacts surface water. So all the streams, all the lakes, uh, they are all in communication with groundwater. And when when PFAS is in the groundwater leaking from a military base or an airport or an industrial facility and into the groundwater, it's migrating under people's homes through past their domestic wells and then into streams where it makes foam and it impacts the fish, the wildlife. It's toxic and, and impacts them as well. So it's, it's, it's insidious and, and uh, it's, it has a large natural resource damages uh, liability with it, with uh, the, the impacting of groundwater with PFAS, not to mention third-party liability from people that are swimming in lakes and streams that are being impacted by PFAS generated from a nearby airport or military base. So it's not just drinking water, it's it's the natural resource itself that's being impacted. So we've heard that a number of companies have entered into deals to resolve yeah. water authority lawsuits. Oh. So the so lawsuits over the drinking water. What are and, and you touched upon this, but what are the remaining risks for um, what other risks are out there for those companies? Well, uh, all of the 
remediation risk. When I say remediation, I mean cleaning up the sites that caused the problem. Um, so, you know, that is a huge looming liability. As I said, you know, 49,000 industrial facilities out there that uh, if, if this probabilistic model is correct, um, a large portion of those are going to have to implement a remediation of groundwater and soil. Uh, they're going to have to treat the source of, of the contamination on their site. And if it's going off-site, they're probably going to have to treat the groundwater that's migrated off-site. And that's, uh, you know, as I, the example I gave you, the $20 million for the refinery, that's the, the, the cost of putting in a pumping system. Um, if, you know, somewhere going to be somewhere between $3 million and $20 million just for the installation. So it could be a lot. It's, it's a huge liability. Yeah, and that's just you know just just assume, assuming that there you know causation could be proven, um, and like you know the the PFAS could be um, tied to those companies. Um, so with respect to and and so we talk, we talked. I think you said you were talking about a refinery where the installation of the pumping and treating method could just could cost three to twenty million dollars. Um, is that true? Like at any PFAS site, like for example, another AFFF site, because I'm trying to get an idea of, and that's the firefighting comb sites. Um, I'm trying to get an idea of how much a, uh, remediation at a single AFFF site could cost. Well, again, it depends on the technology used. Um, there'll be the source area where you have to stabilize the soils or haul the soils off to be disposed of. Um, so worst case, worst case, it would be, uh, you know, uh, in the in the tens of millions of dollars for soil treatment, uh, and then and then tens of million dollar of dollars to install a pumping system, and then to operate it a million you know eight hundred thousand dollars a year to operate it something like that. Uh, I mean that's eight hundred to a million dollars operated per year. So that's a you know that's sort of the worst case. Um, with our technology that we've developed. We've been and able what to is that? What is that technology called? Yeah. So, so the technology that we've developed is, and let me just finish my thought. Instead of a twenty million dollar install and eight hundred thousand dollars a year or or so, uh, there's a military base where we just did a uh, com cost comparison. Um, you know, we were able to to do an installation for under four million dollars. Uh, with no operation costs at all. So we can lower the, 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 the liability for these sites uh, by, you know, by a, by a factor of, of three, so three, five to three. So, so we've taken a, a $20 million install down to three million with no operation and maintenance. So over time, that could be one-tenth the cost of a typical pumping system. So what we've done is instead of taking the water out of the ground and putting it through filtration apparatus to try to filter it out, which is which is the traditional way to treat things, and then having to dispose of that material once you've once you pulled it out of the ground, which is a whole other liability. Um, you know, if you filter these the chemicals out and put it onto carbon or onto ion exchange resin and then dispose of that, now you own part of the landfill under CERCLA. Because anytime you dispose of things, it's joint and several liability under CERCLA. If, you know, so, so it, it, it's it's a continuing liability for the responsible party. What we've done 
is we've taken activated carbon, the charcoal material, and we mill it to the size of a red blood cell. We, we get it down to the size of one micron. And we wrap that with, with negatively charged polymers so that it stays in suspension at the one micron size. So it looks like water, it looks like black ink with the consistency of water. We actually then pour that down into the aquifer, down wells, and pour it right into the aquifer where it paints the in, all of the sand and, and soil and, and rock cracks that are filled with water in the subsurface, it paints it black. In other words, the surfaces become coated with this carbon permanently. So we make the subsurface into what you could think of as a huge Brita filter. So we convert the contaminated aquifer into a huge purifying filter and it strips all the PFAS out. So when you get down gradient on the other side of, of the, uh, the area that we've treated, the water is coming out pure without any, without any PFAS in it. And so, um, you know, we've been doing this for years with other, with other contaminants, treating the subsurface of other contaminants. And in the past, say, five years now, people have begun to use our technology. We call it Plume Stop. A plume is a, is a body of contamination within an aquifer. So we call it plume stop because it just binds up all the PFAS, stops the plume from migrating. The water continues to migrate in the subsurface. The groundwater moves, but it's now purified and cleaned as it moves through the, through the area. So the plume stop technology requires no operation and maintenance. So once you put it in the ground, you're done. For, and if you treat the source upgradient, if you you know the the, uh, the fire training pit or whatever, um, you know one application of plume stop could last forever. Um, if for some reason you can't treat the uh, the incoming concentration of PFAS into the area that you've treated, you can simply reinject it in 50 years, and it'll give you another 50 to 100 years of treatment. So it's a it's a way that you can actually limit the liability by eliminating any risk to anyone down gradient. So, you know, remember that risk, environmental risk is equal to hazard times exposure. And while the PFAS has a hazard because it can't be degraded, it doesn't degrade well, that's why it's called forever chemical. The hazard uh, is, is not a risk if you can eliminate the exposure to it. So by, by binding it up in the subsurface, you know, 50, 60 feet down, it's at no risk to anybody and it's not migrating. So there's no risk downgrading. So that's what we were able to do with Plume Stop. Got it. And so turn, um, shifting gears a little, I wanted to talk about the EPA proposal. They proposed a rule in March to set maximum contaminant levels in water. Um, can you explain what maximum contaminant levels are and what obstacles there could be to achieving those levels? Okay, so that's under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And uh, that's the, the MCL is the maximum concentration uh, level. They were proposed. They're very, very, very low. Um, I, they're in the range of four parts per trillion. Uh, it's near the level of quantitation that you can, you can achieve in analytical methods. Um, and it's, it's for a, a few key, uh, a few, a, a few, two key, PFAS compounds, and then an index for the balance of them. Um, it's, uh, it, they're proposed. Uh, I don't know when that that will be, uh, when they'll be promulgated. However, it, uh, 
you know, it, it, it is for this, for it's mostly relating to drinking water and, and whether those MCLs will be enforced for cleanup levels at under CERCLA has yet to be uh, determined. I, that there's some questions about how they will try to implement those levels. Uh, but, but, uh, once once that's finalized, it certainly is going to change the complexion of of the environmental remediation requirements for PFAS. Uh, it will drive demand for remediation, and uh, it it will drive uh, liability for industries that are using these compounds, and potentially for the uh, the original manufacturers. We'll have to see. So, what types of sites do you think will be the main focus of PFAS remediation in the future? Well, as I say, you know, military bases, airports, and these industrial facilities that range on everything from refineries to small, you know, manufacturing facilities, uh, et cetera. I mean, there's there's a whole range of different different types of of projects that we'll see undertake remediation. Right. So this sounds like it's it's uh, not quite over yet. Um, that will be discussing this probably years from now. Yeah, um, I would say it's just beginning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to reading more about what you have to say in the future. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.